The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Saturday, June 3rd, 2023. Rios, get us out of this damn place! Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the 48th Digest of the second volume covering Monday, May 29th through Friday, June 2nd, 2023. The 100 Greatest Children's Books of All Time. So this is a fun little light opening segment here for this uh, new digest that I came across as I was trying to come up with a topic, something different, something not comic books. And I found this list and it is from the BBC website, uh, the culture segment on that website for the 100 greatest children's books of all time. So they polled uh, 177 book experts from 56 countries in order to find this list. And they wrote here, it felt like just the moment to to survey children's books because of the recent conversation around how they are solely undervalued compared to adult literature. And then they also state, if great children's writing is not receiving the critical respect it should these days, then it certainly continues to make news headlines which are, for better or worse, a reminder of how core it is to our existence. Recently, for example, the widespread concern over the growing movement in the U.S. towards banning children's books, including many dealing with racial and LGBTQ plus themes. So there were 1,050 different books uh, that were voted on by the 177 experts, they were um, a cross-section of critics, authors, and publishing figures, uh, ranging from Austria to uh, Uzbekistan. Of these voters, 133 were female, 41 were male, and three preferred not to say. Each voter listed their 10 greatest books, which then the website scored and ranked to produce this list. Now, of course, as they say, it's not a definitive list. It's not meant to be a definitive list, rather an inspiration for further discovery and debate. And as I look at this list of 100 titles, I'm not going to go through all of them. There are many on the list that I just haven't read as a kid or otherwise. And there's also many on this list that I just don't know. I've never heard of. So, I did a list of my five uh, favorite books from my childhood way back in September of 2012. Uh, it was the Daily Rios for September 18th. Uh, it was a top five Tuesday. A few of those books do show up on this list. So um, I'm not going to go through all 100. You can look up BBC, the 100 greatest children's book books of all time, and you'll find it. But here are some observations, and then I'm going to read off the top 10. So at 100, which I thought, you know, might as well shout this one out, um, Harun and the Sea of Stories by Salman Rushdie. Again, I don't know that one, from 1990. Uh, at 99 and 98, we have two comic book ones, American Born Chinese and The Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. I don't know if that's a comic book one, but um, Neil Gaiman, certainly an author who has done, you know, a lot of comics. Um, at 96, The Velveteen Rabbit. At 85, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. At 69, Peter and Wendy. At 67, The Cat in the Hat. 
At 56, The Giving Tree. At 45, The Lord of the Rings, which I, I, I thought, was that a children's book? Was that meant to be a children's book initially? I, I don't know. I don't know the history of that book. Uh, and then how could I not mention uh, a few bunny books that I loved? At 38, The Tale of Peter Rabbit. At 35, Watership Down, which was my personal favorite when I did that um, top five list. At 13, then I'm skipping all the way to 13, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. So those are the ones that I knew, or at least the ones that probably were major ones that most people would say, and then interspersed were a lot of titles that I didn't know, but then other ones that um, were just sort of, I don't know, maybe didn't reach to this level. Okay, so here is the top 10 list for this list. Uh, it's probably hard to guess what might be on it because I didn't go through all 100, but I'm sure you can guess most of them. At number 10, Matilda. At number 9, Charlotte's Web. At number 8, Winnie the Pooh. At number 7, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. At number 6, Northern Lights by Philip Pullman from 1995. I don't know that one at all. At number 5, The Hobbit. Now that one I think I do recall that that was aimed for a younger readership. Uh, number four, The Little Prince. Number three, I love this, Pippi Longstocking. Number two, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And the first one, Where the Wild Things Are by Maurice Sendak. Most of those on that list I have read. It's curious, I, I, I would love to know, um, you know, modern parenting. Are they still reading most of those from the top 10 list? I can see Matilda being popular. You know, there was uh, that recent Netflix um, special on the musical. Um, certainly, um, maybe Where the Wild Things Are. But are people reading The Hobbit to their kids these days still? You know, unless unless that's not, really not the point of the list, right? It's not about what is going on currently, but maybe of all time. But if you were to have the same conversation about, say, any book uh, post-2000 or post-2010... You know, what are they reading currently? What are you reading currently to your kids that has that same creativity as like Where the Wild Things Are or, you know, uh, the artwork of, of, I don't know, Shel Silverstein or Dr. Seuss or whatever. So anyway, I still thought that was a, a fun list to go through uh, for anybody who was curious. And I liked that it connected back way back to the first year. In fact, to the first probably half a year of the Dale Rios. So there you go the 100 greatest children's books of all time. TV Tuesday. A few digests back, I talked about the first nine episodes of Star Trek Discovery, Season 1, and how I discovered clues throughout those early episodes that could possibly lead to one of the many mysteries in its ongoing story relating to a certain character. This TV Tuesday, I'm going to go back to Star Trek again, this time to The Next Generation, because my love of Picard Season 3 gave me this impulse. Now, if you haven't seen Picard Season 3 
or you aren't up to episode five, at least, of, of season three, you may want to skip this segment. Because the impulse that I had was to go back and rewatch all of the TNG episodes where a certain character appeared. Last warning, that certain character is Ensign Rowe. Ensign Rowe, played by Michelle Forbes. If you've seen Picard Season 3, if you've seen Picard Season 3, Episode 5 at least, you can probably guess why I went on this little journey. Okay, it's not new to say how strong of a character Ensign Rowe was in TNG. A lot of that is because they were setting up major story points for the Star Trek universe through her, you know, her character, her background, more specifically her people. Uh, all of that was uh, more or less the basis for Deep Space Nine. Um, and, you know, this character of Ensign Rowe absolutely was brought to life because of Michelle Forbes, because of the acting, because of how well she um, how, how well she acted the the part, considering how young she was, um, and just her, the, the air that she brought to the show, right? Like um, her own, I'm talking about the actress herself, like her own personality, her own physicality. I mean, she really was a, a welcome breath of, it, of fresh air to the show. Even though she was just an ensign, you can see that the creators had a lot of care for her, they wanted her to fit in with the seven main TNG leads. Quite frankly, they gave her a personality, which many of the leads, you know, they have, but she has a real strong personality. And they wanted a character with differences of opinions and someone with a voice, you know, to kind of mix things up a little bit. In terms of secondary characters uh, on TNG, I think she ranks right up there with Q. And it's crazy to me that it's only now, after all these years, that I discovered that she has, her background uh, is, she's Mexican-American. She has a Mexican-American heritage, which is awesome. So Ensign Rowe and her episodes in TNG, I wanted to go back because I wanted to see the character's arc from where she started to where we last saw her in TNG and then to Picard season three. Now, obviously, TNG, you know, tell... Uh, Telling stories on that show is a lot different to how they're telling stories on Picard, but I still wanted to see how it played out. Were there things that you could connect from her first appearance all the way to her last appearance? Um, clearly in Picard Season 3, they wanted to signal back to the original TNG series, and they wanted to, you know, wrap up some things. And maybe they felt that her character was perfect to bring back, because she was given, um, she was given an ending, but then, you know, what becomes of her, right? So I feel like they're like, yeah, you know what? Ensign Rowe would be a great character to bring back to give her a real ending and to give her kind of like a, you know, uh, a circle, a journey, you know, like where she starts from where she ends, like everything comes back again. And it's really pretty great when you do a rewatch. So I'm not going to go through all the, uh, all of the Emson Rowe episodes fully. I already did that during my great Star Trek rewatch. You can go to the website, punch in Star Trek, and you'll see the favorite episodes of each TNG season. She's the episode uh, the main episode image for the Daily Rios 389, 
which is the favorite TNG season five episodes, because that's when she was first introduced. Three of my favorites of, of um, season five uh, have her in them. She appears in six episodes in season five. Uh, she's only in one episode in season six. That's Rascals. And then she is in the second to last TNG episode ever in season seven, Preemptive, Preemptive Strike, which is an absolute must. You must watch that in relation to Picard season three. So as I said, I'm not going to go through, but there's some, you know, some connective stuff here. Uh, from her very first episode, Ensign Rowe, Obviously, she meets Picard, she meets the TNG crew, we get her Bajoran background. She has a relationship with Guinan, which was brought up in Picard. Mostly what you want to watch it for is what Picard thinks of her as, an, as a member of Starfleet. That's the important part. That's the stuff that connects all the way through to Preemptive Strike and to Picard Season 3. I love that he has this preconceived notion of who she is because of what she has done prior to landing on the Enterprise. And he's disgusted by her, her actions. She doesn't want her on a mission. She doesn't want her on his ship. He thinks that he knows everything about her, right? This is Picard, the Starfleet captain, versus everything he thinks she doesn't stand for, right? Um... And it's personified in their in their first meeting when uh, he calls her Ensign Laren and she says, no, I'm Ensign Rowe because this is the cultural thing we my people do. And he even says, oh, I, I didn't know that. Right. So it's like right there, right there. You're already seeing. Yeah, you think you know her, but you don't. Right. Um, of course, through the episode, he sees her value. He sees her commitment. He sees her potential as she struggles to, you know, help during this mission with the Bajorans. Um, he sees how she was used for this mission, right? He learns about Bajor. He he has ideas of what really, of what went on, but he doesn't realize the truth. And it's through Ensign Rowe that he, he goes, okay, he can learn something sometimes, right? Starfleet is wrong. That's what we get at the ending, right? Um, he realizes that this whole thing was out of everybody's control and he had to trust the one person he thought he could never trust. And then when we get to the ending, he invites her to stay in Starfleet. She says, this uniform just doesn't fit. He says, that can change. He sees in her qualities that can be harnessed, molded, and she says, don't count on it. And then he says, I think you've got a great deal to learn from Starfleet. She says, I always thought Starfleet had a lot to learn from me. He says, that's an attitude that I found common among the best officers I've ever served with. But you're not one of them yet, but you could be if you work at it. And she says, that's an interesting challenge. And I rarely refuse an interesting challenge. So as I said before, total setup for the character, for the character's return, for the eventual continuation of her, possibly through DS9, right? Because at this point, they didn't know that she wasn't going to do it. Um, uh, but I love what he, I love that little challenge that he gives to her. You know, that little, that little thing, that little connection between the two that he was willing to give her a chance because of what Guinan did and her actions. And, and he sees something in her. Um, and that's an important thing as we continue on. 
So the other episodes, real quick, Disaster is great because even though she's an ensign, she's not afraid to confront higher ranks. We get to see her worth, her skill. She does things rather than talk. You know, talking is such a TNG thing, but she actually does. Conundrum is bonkers because everyone is suffering from memory loss. So she starts up a fling with Commander Riker, which I totally forgot about. How they didn't reference that in a larger way in Picard is beyond me. I mean, there are, there's like little tiny moments between Riker and, and Ensign Rowe, like little looks, but it's not it's not totally there. Power play, again, she's an ensign, but she's right in the mix of the situation, helping to figure things out. It's nice to have a different voice in these adventures. Um, I looked at this episode of Power Play as to why she would later be recommended for the advanced tactical training at Starfleet, uh, because she has ideas about, you know, what to do in situations. And you could even say, maybe later, you know, in Picard, why it makes sense that she was eventually recru recruited by Starfleet Intelligence. Cause and effect, she's not a major part of that episode. She's been flying the ship by this point. Uh, the next phase is great because we get to see some character stuff from for her, personal stuff. She's the focus of the episode as her and Jordy figure out if they are dead or caught up in some experiment. You know, it's a lot of techno babble. Um, we get to we get to see uh, what she thinks of everyone else, including Riker, including Picard. She has a good scene with Picard, even though he can't hear it that connects back to that first appearance where she admits that Picard intimidates her. She says, thank you for trusting in her when no one else would. There's that word, trust. Um, and then we get to preemptive strike in season seven. So uh, again, Ensign Rowe, preemptive strike, Picard. Those are the ones that are just brilliant to watch together. And preemptive strike is almost a flip of what is going on in Ensign Row? She comes back to the ship, not as a dark part of Starfleet history, but as a good example of Starfleet, or at least of what Picard wanted her to be, right? A, a, a model member of Starfleet, a part of it, a representative of it. And in the first, you know, in Ensign Row, he didn't want her on the ship. And in this one, he he's doing everything he can to talk to her privately. He wants her at the con station. She says, you know me, I enjoy a challenge. When she's talking about her training at Starfleet, that connects all the way back to her last line in Ensign Row. She says to him, if it weren't for you, my life would be a very different one right now. When she does enter the bridge, notice how all the other characters react to her. Worf, not so much, but Riker and Data especially relate to her when she gets back on the bridge. It's great storytelling stuff. There's like no words spoken. It's all in how they look at her. This episode is um, another parallel to Ensign Rowe. If Ensign Rowe was setting up Bajor and the Cardassians for Deep Space Nine, this is another episode dealing with the Maquis, which eventually is where we get Voyager from. Um, we have a scene between Picard and Admiral Necheyev talking about Roe, where they decide to send her in to this conflict between the Maquis and the Cardassians uh, in the, uh, not the neutral zone, but in the militarized zone. 
And this is all due to her training. And she believe she believes that she's prepared, but you can tell she's forgetting where she came from, right? She's forgetting what she told Picard about her past in that first episode and how she relates to her people. You know, it's almost like, yeah, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to I'm going to do it so that Picard can vindicate his trust in me. Um, it's almost like, did she really think she would be completely Starfleet to go throw to be thrown into her people again, or at least some of her people, or at the very least, against the Cardassians, right? You can see, again, how this episode relates to that Ensign Roe episode, and you, it's almost like you want to warn her, and Picard, like you almost want to say to him, are you nuts? You really think she's not going to react the way she did, right? Um there is a scene early on where she says that she has heard about the Maquis and it's almost like she's trying to subtly tell him that maybe they need to be listened to, that they aren't the adversaries that Starfleet wants to make them out to be. And maybe, maybe Picard should open his eyes a little bit, just like he did with Ensign Rowe. There's some subtext there. I also love that Picard calls her Lieutenant, not Rowe through most of the episode. So um, it's a little bit naive on her part to not think that her character and her past won't come into play. You know, there's no way Starfleet took away all her beliefs. So the rest of the episode plays out like you expect. She sympathizes with the Maquis. She eventually joins them. One of the Maquis leaders reminds her of her dad. He dies. That's when she really uh, starts to be conflicted with this mission. She has one scene where she's talking to Picard and, uh, you know, there's a little bit of doubt seep, seep, seeping in and she's trying to, to suggest that, again, maybe they need to be listened to. She says, if I do have a problem with this mission, it won't stop me from carrying out my duty. That word, duty. I love that because that's what Picard wants to hear, right? So then we get to the key part of the episode near the end where uh, they come up with a plan they decide to meet at a bar in secret, and this bar scene hits hard, knowing what happens to her and to their relationship in Picard Season 3, which also takes place in a bar. She says to him, I thought I could do it. Now I'm not sure where I stand. And he says, you know, and that's her talking from her heart, right? That's her talking as Ensign Roe, the old Ensign Roe, or talking as Roe Laren. Picard responds, not as Picard, but as Starfleet. And he says, you're going to throw out everything you worked for. I could put you before a board of inquiry. I would have you court-martialed if you sabotage this mission. It's your decision. He's not listening to her. And she says, I'll carry out my orders, sir. He's totally not listening to her. This is not Picard and row this is captain this is a captain and and a lieutenant that just has to follow his orders he even says i'm gonna have Riker go with you to make sure nothing happens to obstruct the mission this is and she gives him a look you can tell this is him not trusting her where is all that trust that she talked about where's all that trust that they set up she is hurt that he does not believe her and believe in her you know, she wants him to see that this mission is killing her, that it is going against who she is. But again, 
he can only see Starfleet. Starfleet, 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 not the Bajoran woman um, behind that rank of lieutenant. Uh, in the way that she had come to trust him in her first appearance and how she felt seen, now he doesn't see her at all. He sees what he wanted her to be, a Starfleet officer that can do no wrong, that follows in his footsteps, that is, you know, exactly like he said before, I see these qualities in you to be a good officer. It's heart-wrenching. It really is heart-wrenching. And this whole scene is, like I said, it's taking place in the bar, and it's also, um, they are acting as, you know, uh, that he's going to buy her for sexual favors, he is basically saying to her, you're too much for me. You know, this this mission might be too much for you. Um, you know, the I, I need to use you for what you can do for the mission, right? And there's a point in the middle of the conversation where she says to him, put some money on the table. By this time, you should be negotiating my price. And at the end, he stands up and he says, you know, you're too expensive. It's it's it, it has this like parallel theme going on, right? What she can give to Starfleet and what this this little um, masquerade they're doing. So nobody in the bar realizes who they are. All her worth is what she can do for this mission. All her worth is her body, what she can do, what she can give Starfleet. Um, it's not who she is. It's what she can provide in exchange for this mission. And I was like, oh my God, that is so great. That is so great. And it adds so much to when you finally see them in Picard season three again. Keep in mind that Preemptive Strike was directed by Patrick Stewart. And uh, the last person to see her was Riker before she joined the Maquis. So then when you connect it to Picard season three, um, right away you get Picard just laying into her character, right? She had a mission to protect the Federation against terrorists, and then she became one. Empathy is one thing, betraying her commanding officer is another. The first thing he wants to know when he sees her is, you know, how can she still be in Starfleet? Not about why she did what she did, right? And it isn't until he notices that she isn't wearing her earring that he starts to speak personally. Uh, but then he says, or is this you turning your back on another institution? He really let that one mission affect his entire relationship with her, you know? He says to her, why did you betray your honor? She says, my honor or Starfleet's? Blind faith in any institution does not make one honorable. And that's the key to that preemptive strike. She was going, um, she she wanted her honor intact. That's why she joined the Maquis. Uh, she's, let's see, when they're in the bar, he says, you do remember Guinan, don't you, right? Kind of like very snarkily. He says, I've been rehearsing this conversation for 30 years. She says, you have no idea what it was like living under your relentless judgment. Uh, he says, you know, we had a relationship based on mutual respect, based on, and he pauses, you and I. I almost wondered if he, if he was going to say, I don't know, love or something else. She says, you wanted to mold me in your image, your mentorship, your affection. It was conditional. And I was like, yes, yes, it was. It totally was. Um, she says, you confuse morality with duty. He says, I believed in you. She says, only when it was easy for you. If I meant so much, you would have understood. 
you broke my heart and you broke mine. Great parallels, great callbacks to preemptive strike without actually making you go, wait, I don't understand this conversation, right? You can just, you can listen to it and you can understand their relationship from what is said or you can go back and remember the episodes as well. You know, it's very powerful. And what I love is, once again, she's coming to Picard, but this time she's the one coming to save Starfleet. I mean, how loyal can you be? She is willing right now in this episode to give up her life to save Starfleet, and she comes to Picard to do it. If there's any more... Uh, of an answer as to how far she's come and, and the full circle nature of her character, that's really it. So she says, I wish just once that you could look into my heart and understand that I only did what I thought was best. All these years, I wish you'd known me and that I'd known you. And then when she's flying away in the ship and she knows that she might die, she says, I'm giving you what you gave me all those years ago, a fighting chance. Picard says, Roe, I do see you, everything, forgive me, it's only now. Yeah, so good. It's such a great journey and story. I'm so glad that they threw her character in, not just for nostalgia, not just for, um, you know, Easter egg sake. Like, it really does mean something. And you watch all these episodes, and boy, does it hit home. And, you know... Just watching these two actors, these two great actors, Patrick Stewart, Michelle Forbes, watching these two great characters, just watching Ensign Rowe grow from all of these characters. Yeah, it, it makes the way they used her on Picard that much more powerful and really speaks to how she could have been uh, one of the greatest characters on uh, at least TNG and had she gone to Deep Space Nine. Because she is just perfect for these kinds of stories. Not to take anything away from Kira, but, uh, you know, when you when you look at the little that we've seen of Ensign Rowe, quality, quality stuff. So do yourself a favor, watch Ensign Rowe, watch Preemptive Strike, and then watch Picard Season 3, Episode 5 again. I think you will really enjoy that little mini-movie uh, on the character of Ensign Rowe. New Comics Wednesday, New Comics Wednesday recommendations for the week of May 31st, starting with IDW's Star Trek Annual for 2023 from the creative team on the current Star Trek series that I've been enjoying so much. This is for $5.99. It is the USS Theseus trying to take some downtime only to get caught up in a holodeck adventure throughout Star Trek history. So one of those stories that brings together the various uh, shows within the Star Trek universe. From self-made hero, we have Starman, David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust Years by Reinhard Kleist for $19.99. The gripping tale of this dazzling character's genesis, tracing both Bowie's hapless efforts 
on the London music scene before Ziggy's conception and his struggles with his own creation at the height of his fame. This publication has not been prepared, approved, authorized, or licensed by the David Bowie estate or any related entity. I love that they put that disclaimer in there. From tomorrow's, we have back issue 144 for $10.95, taking a look at Kesar, Lord of the Hidden Jungle in the 70s. Yes, I said Kesar because when if you listen to one of the Marvel Saga Monday segments that first introduced the character from X-Men number 10, I believe, they have a little pronunciation guide right there on the splash page, and it says pronounced K-Sar. Not Czar, but Sar, K-Sar, which is weird because, of course, it's K-Zar or Kazar or whatever. Anyway, uh, yeah, so it's a, a whole issue devoted to him. Also, Cliffhanger, cinematic superheroes of the serials from 1941 to 1952. This is a hardcover from Tomorrow's for $39.95 by Christopher Irving taking a look at the movie serials from that black and white era. At least I'm assuming they're all black and white. Shazam, Captain America, Spy Smasher, Superman, Batman, the stuntmen, the directors, the creators, the actors, etc., etc. From Dawn of DC, this week we have the Power Girl special for $5.99, acting as a prelude to her title that will be released in September. And there is a backup tale with Fire and Ice, also as a prelude to their miniseries later in the year. I think I think we're going to do an All Dawn of DC episode on DC All-Stars at some point, taking a look at the first issues that have shown up on the app, on the Ultra Tier app. Um, I don't know when that will be recorded, but uh, it's in the works um, uh, you know, maybe within the next month or so. Uh, I've been keeping up with Dawn of DC, and I'm, you know, I'm hankering to talk about it, so we shall see. All right, there you go. Those are your recommendations for the week of May 31st. Drawing Funny is the podcast where we're talking tunes with some sketchy characters in the comics industry and fandom. I'm Lynn Workman, your host for this pandemic-inspired podcast. Join the comics conversation with some of my fellow Mid-South Cartoonist Association's Memphis Art Mafia, or folks like Atomica and the hostage creator, Sal Abenanti. Glad to do it. I mean, the exposure was nice. It wasn't like the next day I couldn't walk down the street. You know, I don't know if I would do it again right away. Jenny Zero, co-creator and party monster supreme, Dave Dwanch. Look, a little foreplay. I need to eat, I need to hydrate, <laughs> but we'll get to it. Athena Voltaire, creator, Steve Bryant. Tell me of the tales beyond my, my lands. <laughs> and fangirl Wednesday's Nikki Workman. Yeah, I'm not waiting up to 3 o'clock in the morning for a new episode to drop. I'm old. I need sleep. And I have a job. Episodes can be found at drawingfunny.com or most anywhere you like to download podcasts. Stay tuned and keep drawing funny. Guys, what do you, what do you, what do you want me to tell you? I've said it a thousand times, no, I'm not Alex Ross, and then they still don't believe me. A thought for Thursday, and for the new month of June. 
June is busting out all over, all over the meadow and the hill. But the butting out of bushes and the rumbling river ripples all the little wheels that will beside a mill. June is busting out all over, all over the butting deep and tense. And the little bitters drifting and they hunting up the cheapest out of all the morning glories on the fair because it's June. Feedback Friday. Feedback Friday for the month of May, as we are now in a new month, taking a look at your responses for the digests that were released in May, or at the very least, dated for May. And we start with Ben Lyons on the website, talking about the digest for May 6th. And this was in response to the Meanwhile column, where Dick Giordano uh, laid out the ideas and the impulses behind DC raising their cover prices from 60 cents to 75 cents in 1983. Ben comments, huh, 75 cents in 1983 is about $2.29 in today's dollars. And then he also replied on the website to the digest for May 13th. Uh, this was about the Star Trek Discovery clues um, that I talked about in that episode. And he says, of course I'm here for this Star Trek analysis. This is an absolutely great symbolic analysis of the clues to the Mirror Universe being involved in Season 1. We, the viewers, have really been having a ringside seat as the writers for Trek figure out how to write a season-long arc. Picard especially struggled with this in Season 1, but as much as I loved Discovery, I feel that some of these hints were too obscure, and many viewers that rejected the darkness in Discovery would have stayed if they had more obvious hints of what was going on. Totally can see that, Ben. Uh, as I mentioned when I did the breakdown, a lot of those clues... The authentic ones and the ones that I just pulled were very subtle, but I do enjoy uh, sort of mining and excavating anything that might speak to the larger narrative of a series, even if it's just slightly there. Eric from the Longbox Review podcast pointed me to a discussion with Brent Black, the creator behind the Khan Star Trek musical. And this was on the Inglorious Trexperts podcast that was just released this week. And that was in response to me talking about that musical on the Digest for May 6th. So go look at the Inglorious Trexperts if you want to hear more behind Khan, the Star Trek musical. And then we close things out with uh, Murray Fox emailing uh, at the end of May to talk about feedback for year three of the Digest. And Murray writes, I'm hoping you find something to replace Marvel Saga Mondays and the Wednesday comics features. What do I want to see replace it? Not sure. DC Challenge? Solo? Danger Street? 
don't be precious with that. It doesn't have to be a deep dive. Just look at it and relate it to where you thought it was going or how it connects to first issue special. What I liked about how you were looking at the saga was that it was short and sweet. You were dropping in on various events and characters and checking in and relating what you knew and felt to what the comic was showing. Do that again with something else, but do it differently. And then he has a little smiley face. I love that direction, right? Do it again, but with something else and do it differently. Um, I will be following up the Marvel Saga talk. Uh, not on the same schedule as Marvel Saga, but I'm thinking I'd like to follow up on the Marvel Saga books with other Saga books that were released after the fact. You know, all throughout the 90s and even into the 2000s, most of them were free one-shots that retailers could give away, and they usually were released right before whatever that subject was, uh, got like an ongoing title. And it would bring readers up to speed and it acted as promotions and it had trade suggestions. But it very much, well, I'm assuming it's very much in that Marvel Saga style. They did it with Wolverine, New Mutants, Moon Knight, Spider-Woman, Secret Invasion, Runaways, etc., etc., etc. Again, I don't know if it's the same narrative format format or if they were just straight dry facts but we'll see we'll see what those are like and how it leads to a larger discussion again it won't be on the same every other week format um it might even be sort of like what i do with meanwhile mondays it's meant to be once a month but sometimes i don't get to it and i might do you know maybe two or three in one segment as opposed to just one issue. Again, we'll see. So I do have some post-Marvel Saga talk. I don't know if I'm going to follow up Wednesday comics. Um, I think I really want to go back to doing current reviews on the Wednesday segments for Wednesday Night Fever because a um, a lot of the segments for year two... A lot of the things I talked about, certainly with Timeline Tuesday, it's all like in the past, right? And I want to try to focus a little more on current things, which I guess, you know, over on the DC All-Stars podcast, I get to talk about uh, current comics, so that helps to fill that gap. Um, But I, I want to focus a little bit more on the current stuff, and if I keep my Wednesday free, I have more options to do that, along with New Comics Wednesday. So we'll see how that uh, we'll see what happens there. Um, But I do like the notion of trying to do one or two segments that are in rotation. And I have one idea. Um, It's also on a Monday. uh, And I'm coming up with another idea. We'll see how that works out. And I do have a larger idea, similar to Marvel Saga, that I've hinted at here and there, but not a lot. And I'm still not ready to talk about, but We'll see if that comes into play for uh, year three of the Digest or this next year of the Daily Rios, since my anniversary starts in July. So, great. Thank you for that feedback for this month. Always appreciate that. Anybody who has liked and definitely anybody who has retweeted any of the episodes, that's awesome. If you comment on the website, awesome. If you reached out to me, also awesome. I have a few emails that I didn't get to that uh, were dropped in June, so we'll get to those 
uh, next time around. And you can reach me, Peter, at thedailyrios.com or on the Daily Rios website or on the Daily Rios Instagram. Follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher. And if I'm uh, not there, let me know. Uh, book club recommendations. Let me know if you want to join me on a book book club episode. This has been the Daily Rios episode 620 for Saturday, June 3rd, 2023. Talk to you soon. And what was all of that about? Oh, we were just discussing the situation we're all in. Mm, good. Because I have a feeling that I used to be the jealous type. <laughs>